Hello! Welcome to the FBC Paris, a podcast that explores intersectional feminism through literature. Today I'm talking to award-winning poet and author Kieran Millwood Hargrave, who is also the writer of December's book, The Mercies. Kieran was born in 1990 and started writing poetry in her final year at university. The Mercies was released in 2020, and it's actually Kieran's debut adult novel. She has previously written several young adult novels that have gone on to win awards. The Mercies is historical fiction. It was inspired by the real events of the Vardurstorm and the 1621 witch trials. It's a story of love, evil, an obsession set at the ever dark edge of civilization. During the episode, we talk about overcoming grief, the complexities of female friendships, female love, as well as faith and spirituality, and we dig deeper into her cast of wonderfully complicated characters. Hope you enjoy. Well, Kieran, thank you so much for. Um putting aside some time for to speak to me for the FBC Paris. We're going to be talking about the Mercies um, this Sunday at Book Club. Um, I do. It's super exciting. And we actually read Circe um, oh, wow. together earlier this year as a book club. Yeah. So it's very interesting because the Mercies is... Um, a very different side of, um, or different kind of portrayal of witchcraft. Um, yeah. Even though you've obviously got that really kind of rugged, natural landscape and, and to some extent, you know, isolation. Yeah. That feeling of being cut off from the world. But, you know, those, those kind of paths are, are, are quite different. But let's, hang on, before I get ahead of myself, yeah. let's just kind <laughs> of, you know, begin with a kind of, hello, how are you? And... Um, and then maybe just start at the beginning so it's not too muddled. Um, so welcome officially to the FBC Paris podcast, Kieran. It's lovely to have you with us. Thank you for having me. Um, and very odd year, obviously, um, at the beginning of which your debut author novel, The Mercies, which we're going to be talking about today, um, sorry, your debut adult novel, came out at the beginning of this year, I believe it was February? Yes, early February. Early February, which does feels like a lifetime ago, given everything that's happened. It was a lifetime happened. ago, wasn't it? Yes. Um, I've spoken to a couple of debut authors this year who have had no comparison point, and so they've brought their first book out, you know, in the midst of um, the health uh, crisis. At least you have had other... <laughs> Yes. Book launches, you have something to compare it to. Um, so it's lovely to, I'm really looking forward to, to learning a little bit more about um, how the Mercies came to be in the world. And I suppose a good place um, to start um, would be with the origin story. You know, I, I, I read this incredibly moving Powell's article where you'd shared um, kind of the roots of the mercies. So I just wonder if I could ask you for the community who will be listening to this, could you, could you share a little bit of the ground that you cover there? So kind of, 
yeah, where the idea came from. And you're, inc- I mean, you got so up close, you know, to yeah. to Vardo, the, the the place that you write about. Um, I'd, I'd love to hear um, about some of that, um, please. Of course, of course. So, I there are a couple of things that happened yeah. to start me on the journey of writing. The first one was a dream. And mm. I am not someone who has interest in dreams. I'm, <laughs> it's really so when I wake up and I've had a dream that isn't, you know, just me yeah. trying and failing to fly or walking around <laughs> naked, I, I really remember it. Um, sure. And this dream was about a woman uh, climbing down a cliff to a beached mm. whale. And I knew. I wasn't exactly the woman, but I had a very strong connection. I felt very strongly for the woman. Mm. And this image was just so clear and so unusual that I wrote it down in a paragraph um, and sort of put it away and didn't didn't think about it. And then a few weeks later, I was reading the BBC News website and saw this incredible photograph of this metal chair that was on fire mm. and um, I clicked on it and it turned out that it was Louise Bourgeois' final installation and she's an extraordinary artist, mm. I absolutely adore her work so I thought oh, I must go and see it, it must be in mm. London or Paris <laughs> but <laughs> it turns out that it was on this tiny Arctic Circle island wow. called Vardje um, in northeastern most Norway mm. and instantly the setting this image just had me intrigued and Mm. it turns out that it was part of a memorial to 91 men and women who were burned on the spot where the memorial now stands on this tiny island in Scandinavia's largest witch hunts in the 1600s and Mm. I still can access very strongly that feeling I suppose it was the same feeling of connection I felt to the woman in the dream. Mm. This instant spark, this instant need to know more, and this instant care. I felt, yeah, just this, this almost, this is too strong a way of putting it, I think, but duty of care to mm. this story and to find out more. And so I started researching, and of course that meant Wikipedia, and there wasn't too much on there and but it did mention a storm that happened Mm. in 1617 that killed 40 fishermen in an instant and three years later the witch trials began and Mm. I thought someone must have written a novel you know a storm and then witch trials this is just you know it was goosebumps it really Mm. was this absolute eureka moment and when I found out there wasn't a novel I really didn't have the time but I knew I had to write it Mm. and spent a very intense six weeks um, writing and I reached out to this incredible woman called Dr Liv Helen Willemson who is the foremost expert on these trials and helped create the memorial helped translate the women's testimonies Mm. and we formed a friendship Mm. um, over the, the following it's now been three years that we've known mm. each other and yeah it's just been the most it's been a very unique journey because I have now written seven books but this was the most intense and compelling 
experiences of my life and remains mm. that way even three books afterwards okay thank you for for sharing that with us I mean I'm getting goosebumps I, I mean I got goosebumps when I read the article and just imagined you kind of I mean, you actually, because um, Dr. Willemson um, sent you kind of material, you know, you, you held like women's testimonies in your hand. Um, yes. It was an incredibly powerful image just to imagine. So I, I love actually what you said about that duty of care, that responsibility. Having read The Mercies, I don't think that's too strong a statement at all. In fact, I think it perfectly encapsulates like how how you told the story of these women and the care that you took yeah honestly thank you for for sharing that um that kind of experience uh, with us you know in the you know in the historical note um at the back um of the mercies um i've just lifted this quote so you say This story is about people and how they lived before why and how they died became what defined them, which, again, I feel is incredibly caring. Um, You do cover the witch trials. We are there at them as a reader. But it's true that the bulk of um, the mercies is spending like day to day um, following the day to day lives um, of this island of women. Um, who just lost all of their men in a flash second. Um, Historically speaking, the initial target um, of the witch hunts were actually the indigenous community, so the Sami people. Um, And, but as you mentioned in Louise Bourgeois' um, kind of last uh, installation, a total of 91 uh, people were, were killed, but 77 of those were actually Norwegian women. Yes. So commission And the other four were Sami men. Were Sami men, that's right. So there was still a kind of gender divide, um, but the majority of um, the victims were... Yeah, were Norwegian women. So yes. basically, Commissioner Cunningham had... had kind of taken the brief and gone one step further with it. Yeah. So, you know, the, 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 the net was cast wider, so to speak. And you've included the character of, of, of Dina, um, yes. through whom we gain um, a little insight into this, this indigenous community, their kind of, you know, spiritual beliefs and practices, which we quickly see are maligned and cast aside um, you know there's such a, a layer an obvious layer of hypocrisy um, you know some of the women having once consulted uh, Dina or people from her community for help with you know fertility spells or yeah. weather spells for their husband going out to sea very quickly gets forgotten and yeah maligned um, it takes on a very kind of de- demonic element um, I wonder if you could share with us um, perhaps, you know, what did you know about this community before discovering the island of uh, Valdeux? Um, And, you know, how does this indigenous community live today? Is it relatively peaceful or, you know, less, less so? Well, 
So in answer to the first part of your yeah, question, sorry. very little. No, no. <laughs> um, just uh, if I don't address it, then I will forget. I don't mind like a sieve. Oh. Um, has an L. Oh, no. <laughs> and very little. I, I did mm. see an extraordinary um, TV program mm. about reindeer uh, migration and um, some Sami herders sort of herding their reindeer mm. across the sea um, in in summer wow. um, and then taking them back across the sea to sort of winter them, overwinter them mm. on the mainland. And the, it is still, you know, possible to live that way, but constantly their freedoms and their rights and their rights of passage are being squeezed yeah um and are being limited to this day and this is a process that did very much get kick-started in the yeah. 1600s and actually up until then there is real evidence of if not complete peace but at least cooperation yeah. and tolerance um mm. between communities you know the sami people were mm there first and yes. then the vikings and um other i suppose you call them europeans sort of migrated mm. north and 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 created settlements but there was a certain amount of of integration um mm. and it certainly wasn't that lines had been drawn as to what was good and what was bad mm. and i think in the 1600s there was this real crisis of faith, crisis of, of sort of power. Mm. And in order to consolidate that power, what the European leaders did was they created an enemy because, and yeah. we see this in the UK with Brexit, mm. you know, let's, mm. let's blame, uh, you know, a very simple, let's go with the simple messaging. This is the problem. If we sort this problem, it's mm. going to solve all our issues. And, you know, it, it, at that time it was still things like fishing and, and rights like that yeah. but it it was also a struggle for your soul you know they yeah. saw the sami practices as as black magic as yes devil's magic right um, it took on an evil exactly element yeah and it it was just a fear and a simple um a simple way to channel people's frustrations yeah. because I think something that's interesting to note as well about this time is there were lots of weather events very mm. strange weather events the climate was changing right. and you know there were failed harvests further south in the north it had been particularly cold and the fish weren't as plentiful and so that people were starving <laughs> yeah. and there were these real cataclysmic storms such as the one that murdered the men of Vajil killed, I should say, because storms don't murder. Mm. <laughs> and, and people needed an explanation. And right. It was kind of that rationalisation and also the birth exactly. of science and yes. capitalism and all these kind of structures, uniform structures that, yeah, yes. demanded something, yeah, rational and tangible. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And so the Sami were the, well, we always see it, don't we? That, yeah, even know, now across be, continents, yeah. you know, it's an incredibly fragile kind of position. Exactly. Mm. And it will be, you know, they came for the Sami first and then they went for the women. 
and absolutely and who was next you know in the pecking order kind of so to speak exactly yeah 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 um gosh yes uh, well I think th- it was just very um interesting and inclusive to you know have the character of Dina and as I've said um have some access a little bit to to that universe to that community um and this is not kind of it's more of an observation um than any criticism but kind of with this reappropriation of um witches in kind of you know perhaps the past five to ten years um I think just is very careful, especially you know, from a feminist uh, perspective, to to remember um, kind of the true origins and not simply whitewash, um, yeah. you know, witches once again, um, as we can tend to do, you know, as there is a tendency to yeah. do sometimes. Um, so again, I'm just going to keep linking back to that your fantastic care of duty element and yeah, just that inclusivity. Um, so Marin has this, uh, we could say, prophetic uh, dream um, of a whale. And, and the whale is actually a recurring presence that comes up, you know, a few times throughout the book. Um, I mean, I can't uh, remember 100%, but often when Marin kind of feels a kind of a panic or some kind of very kind of crystallization of something um I wondered if you could um perhaps share the significance of you know this this relationship between um the whale and Marin who who I believe her name means star of the sea yeah okay cool (laughs) thank you Wikipedia (laughs) (laughs) thank you Google (laughs) so I, the whale is prophecy and yeah. the whale is warning. Mm. And also the mercies, it's a book about trauma. It's a book mm. about grief. And mm. the whale, the dream that Marin has the night before her father, her brother, her fiance die. Yeah. Um, it's, she cannot do anything but see it as a warning as a prophecy it's a self-fulfilling mm. yeah. symbol and this is why I send the whale to her mm. at various points because it's really about trying to get Marin to trust her instincts mm. and I think when we are traumatized we always think oh why did why didn't I see this coming why um couldn't I have have noticed that or this and I sort of wanted to give Marin that device to be able to coach say no you did know this was coming Mm. and you know it's okay (laughs) and I send it back to her in those difficult moments when she's having a feeling about something or like you said those crystallizing Mm. moments because I wanted her to have that almost that solidity of a symbol to hang that certainty on yeah it's kind of what grounds her isn't it exactly Mm. it's like a it's like um a talisman Mm, yes but it but it haunts her as well you know it's not a simply soothing thing but she comes to see it through the book she comes to see it in a more positive light and less of a horror 
Yes, in a way, um, you know, when we read Cersei together, we kind of felt that, you know, at the end of uh, the book, Cersei really steps into her power. And I think you could say the same about Marin. She starts off definitely um you know she she definitely kind of goes on a journey as we often say uh between the beginning and the end of the book um so I I I love yeah I love that explanation of the kind of the whale as her talisman and um it, it becomes more of a comforting kind of presence or at least she understands what it signifies and how and uses that to her strength you know exactly Mm. she sits with it and I I absolutely adored Cersei for the for the reasons that you've described you know this powerful woman yeah you know stepping into her power claiming that but I knew I couldn't wholly go there with the mercies because it is a work of historical fiction and I had to pay respect to the women who actually lived through it Absolutely. and and respect how they would have reacted and they wouldn't yeah. have been able to just be these empowered, you know, modern Myth- feminists. Yeah, mythological, <laughs> exactly. but there's also a mythological aspect, yeah. you know? I mean, Cersei is literally a goddess. <laughs> exactly. And, but I did want to wrest back some of that power mm. um, for her. And the whale is part of that, for mm. sure. And you, you mentioned... Um, you know, that The Mercies is very much a, a book about grief and trauma. And it just made me think, I think one of, of a moment in the book, and I think it's one of the most kind of quietly heartbreaking moments, is when Marin and Ursula, Ursa go to uh, Kristen's um, kind of hut to kind of clear out any potential... Um, signs that would just um, give her accusers kind of more material. And yeah. Marin finds the, the rune stones by her bed that I, th- I believe are to ward off nightmares. And it yeah. just kind of, it's the first time that Marin, con- you know, contemplates uh, Kristen kind of go, go living her grief. Yeah, being afraid, not being this, not being this strong woman a hundred percent of the time i thought that was um devastating yes. but beautiful um oh, so well, so oh, sorry <laughs> no no thank you thank you i mean there's just so much power in in in, in words and your writing um so our dream team marin and ursa yeah. uh literally two polar opposite opposites you know um ursa is very kind of angelic pale yellow there's a lot of like yellow and gold and kind of that you know that the sky and uh, about her whereas Marin is very much her is very Florence Pugh oh (laughs) yes that's great my image of her (laughs) that's so good um and Marin you know just physically but also um character wise completely different very much tied to the sea Darker, thinner, slightly more worrisome, and Rooney Mara. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Just to goodness! Yes, Rooney Mara. How I see oh, that's perfect. Um, and Mara's actually quite hard to get a read on. Um, yes. You know, I mean, we the readers are quite privileged because we're kind of in, we're following her, we're, we're with her. Um, but I know, especially to Ursher at the beginning, she's um, a little bit unreadable. Yeah. Um, 
You know, there's, there's trauma, there's grief, but there's also a lot of female friendship, um, of course, in the Mercies. And it was lovely to get to know Marin and Ursula and see their friendship turn, um, turn into something more, turn into love, um, yeah. romance, fleeting, but, you know, <laughs> kind of keeps them both standing, keeps them both going. Um, yes. Did you always know that this would be a friendship that went further or was that something that just progressed when you were, like, once you started writing? So here's what I knew. So <laughs> I knew Marin was gay from the moment right. I put her in a room with another woman. And I think the first time that happens with a woman who's not her mother is Dina giving birth. Oh, and Yes. There is there was something about the way Marin was looking at this woman's body yeah. that was not merely sisterly. Right. <laughs> was and not merely in awe of the act of birth. It was something sensual, it mm-hmm. was something more. And I knew from her already reaction to Doug, her fiance, that you know, she, she was going along with the kissing and stuff because he was kind and gentle and she wanted a house. There wasn't a real depth of want there yes. for her, for him, for a male body. So I knew very early on Marin was gay. And then Ursa didn't actually come into my mind until I was about a third of the way through writing the first draft and I was just so depressed. Oh. and needed something, mm. someone to come into this story and just breathe some air into it. And that's when I went back and unknotted some of the claustrophobia and created Ursa. And what Ursa is, I think by today's terms, she'd be called bisexual. But really, I think she enjoys giving people comfort mm. and enjoys being what people need. From yeah, her. and what she sees in Marin in that moment, at towards the end, mm. is this desperate need for love, and she—it's not that she isn't then sexually excited by Marin, but it's more that she just wants to comfort her friend. Yeah, and I think she does love Marin, mm. but I think it's more she loves her friend, um, mm. and that she wants to be able to give her what she needs which is a form of romantic love anyway you know, yes um so it was a very natural decision that, that watching these characters grow if if you write if you you know mm. any of the listeners write you'll know that feeling when mm. your characters just become people and <laughs> you are just writing down what they are doing as opposed to telling them what to do and wow it just felt natural that in that moment of crisis when they are both together they need each other and they and it as a author I couldn't not give them that yeah you couldn't deny Um, them their nice moment exactly exactly it had to it was it would it had to happen Mm. um and you know it it's a source of great light and hope in the book yeah um so I'm really glad that Ursa yeah. comes in when she does. <laughs> yeah, she was much needed. Um 
I think there was also, I read Kirsten as um, lesbian, potentially bisexual, um, but there was something, yeah, I felt like her and her, her husband were, were more friends. Um, That's, I know. think, definitely something that a lot of readers have shared. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's all there on the page. And absolutely, if that's personally, I see her as a sort of a gay icon as opposed mm. to actually being gay herself. I personally think she is a very attractive, very strong yeah. woman who loved her husband and wasn't able to have children and so they became they became equals because she wasn't yeah. made subservient by you know staying home she became mm. she did become his friend and his partner but mm. to my mind she is straight okay um, because a lot of people were like oh Marin and Kirsten they could have you know I think it's more that Marin has a big crush on Kirsten as mm. do I um, as do I <laughs> fantastic I imagine her as I can't remember her her name but the is it in Game of Thrones the really tall oh uh, played by Gwendolyn Christie Gwen, Gwendolyn yes Christie. okay got, like, it. got it as far as I know Gwendolyn Christie is straight but mm-hmm. she's got such raw energy, energy and you're just like uh, yes <laughs> yes so that's it's... kind of where she sits where Kirsten sits to my oh. mind but at, there's that's not necessarily the correct you know it's all sure the sure people will will read uh, characters yeah. differently but what you said just there makes a lot of sense um I think as well I mean I, I definitely agree that you know Kirsten um and her husband were kind of equals because yeah. she knew what to do. She was, you know, when when the men had gone, um, she was the one who kind of took charge, but also had the skills to do things yeah. like go out and fish. Um, she was actually very entrepreneurial um, yeah. and, and knew more, more than, you know, knew how to do more than just survive. She was, yeah, she was very impressive. Um, yeah. that, is, that is for certain, which makes her downfall even, like, it just made it so much harder. Um, I know, and, it, I and think... it's hard, I think, as well, because, you know, I wanted to empower all these women, but it wasn't realistic. No. And, you know, Kirsten is only that way because she's been allowed to be by her husband. Yeah, right. Um, and ultimately, she's as much in that trap yeah. as any of them. But Anyone's on, Everyone's on know, the same level, lucky. aren't they? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So from from these kind of glorious, loving female friendships to um, betrayal, um, you know, women being complicit in another woman's downfall. I mean, by the time yeah. Absalom um, arrives on the island, um, I, I feel like his presence is merely a catalyst for what, you know, already exists between the women women um we've got snippets um for example we know that toril is responsible for dina's uh scar which happened when they um were children when they were much younger yeah um and there there is kind of the kirka crew 
um, and then like <laughs> you know Kirsten's crew. But but when Absalom turns up, that divide just completely cracks, um, and yeah. you know everyone becomes just things degenerate very very quickly. How I mean again, this is kind of this is historical fiction. This is based on something that happened. But how was it for you as a woman to you know write of women uh, from, for example, you know we have the privileged Kristen Cunningham, um, who's just kind of going along with her husband and and has bought into that lifestyle or was born into that lifestyle. Yeah. Um, to the uh, more pious, you know, as a really a kind of religious drive for someone like Taril. Um, it's devastating to read of women being complicit in other women's uh, downfall. You know, what, what were some of their motive? like what were their motivations, what were their backstories there? How was that for you to kind of write? Yes, I mean, I would love to believe in this utopia of, yeah women but but often we are our worst enemies and we because and to my mind that is because we exist within this patriarchal structure yes i agree um and patriarchal to me means power and Mm. this and that that has been overwhelmingly we've been conditioned to treat women as competition i feel very lucky that that's not how i personally feel but as a society that's how we have been conditioned Mm. and it is no surprise that these women do turn on each other and Mm. I think what's notable in beforehand before Absalom's arrival is it's more motivated by grief and Mm. everyone having their own way of dealing with the trauma Mm. so Kirsten her way is that she says let's just survive this Mm. let's get through this Mm -hmm. um for toril it's to go to the church and to Mm. pray and to try and find some sense because she to her there must be sense in Mm. what's happened god must have done this right and if not god then the devil Mm -hmm. and so to her it's very clear that there must be a scapegoat Mm. because either someone's done something wrong and angered god or you know this is the devil yeah working working on them Mm. yes so and then when Absalom comes in what that does is it intensifies Mm. because it brings out in all the women their worst you know Kirsten is is not kind to people like Toril she doesn't try to understand them Mm. um she mocks them Marin sees them as pathetic and Mm. And, you know, it's, but really all these women are trying to do is process this enormous loss. Mm. They watched their sons, their fathers, their brothers, their husbands die in front of them. And that, that has ripped something in all of these women. Yeah. And, and, and I wish that everyone responded with kindness (laughs) or with practicality, but they don't. Some people become angry. Mm. Um, become bitter, become fearful, and that's what you see happen um, in this book. Definitely, I mean, in a way, um, not that there's really any point in kind of making comparisons, but it feels more deplorable that Kristen Cunningham, yeah, you know, because there is something for Toral, or there is some, 
rationale for her. Whereas Kristen Cunningham, it's really just like, this is how she, she's almost been indoctrinated. Yeah. Um, and she doesn't have to care. It's sport. No, it's literally sport, care. you yes, know? Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what it is to her. She is very bored and mm. very smart. And her husband is cruel and mm. she has become cruel. Yeah. And, you know, it's well, well documented that Cunningham, because there are only really two completely true people in this book. Yeah. Um, and that is Cunningham and Kristen, his wife. Mm, gosh. And Cunningham is a well documented sadist. He yeah. got Kristen pregnant over and over until she died and then married oh, again. Gosh. And it's just the existence of someone. You know, she was a highly educated woman brought to the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> and she is just bored. And you're right, she sees the trials as sport because she does not see the women there as women, as people. Right. She sees them as peasants. You know? Yeah. And yeah. that is awful <laughs> and deplorable. And to her, it makes perfect sense that Absolutely. there is this hierarchy and that she is higher up. Yeah. And she is absolutely awful, but I, I hate. I mean, I hate many characters in this book, but the only person I have true hatred for is Cunningham. Cunningham. I think he is the worst. <laughs> yeah, the worst. He needs to go in the bin. I mean, Definitely. the you know we meet the Cunninghams at um, the that dinner. I mean, it's just the most awkward, horrible yeah. dinner, and I felt like you I could see it coming with Kristen but you just I mean it was just done so brilliantly like Ursha is so taken in by her she yeah. has all the right words she has all the right gestures and I, I you know that was probably on some level you know she was that woman um yeah. and then it just like the she does a 180 and she just basically becomes the mouthpiece of you know her husband's kind of sadistic beliefs and like what well, you can't feel sorry for these women and um, they they trap you you know they're devious yeah. kind of thing I mean that whole scene I'm, I I don't think I realized you know that I wasn't breathing until about halfway through <laughs> when I was like why am I lightheaded and about to pass out um, and what you just I loved writing that scene. I can imagine yes I can imagine how kind of satisfying and delicious that was for you as a writer um, and actually what you've just said about Cunningham there has made me, um, I, I've been reading a little bit alongside The Mercies, um, which is Witch Hunting and Women, and it's, it's some of Sylvia Federici's essays. Oh, wow. um, and it's, it's very short, it's only about 70 um, pages, but as you can imagine, it's quite dense. Yeah. Um, and what you said about Cunningham basically getting, like, just making sure that Kristen has children until she kind of expired yeah. um, was came up in the form of Martin Luther um, so you know all around kind of bourgeois sexual morality and he was yeah. you know apparently known for saying let women bear children to death they are created for that um, so yeah so Cunningham really kind of personifying um that idea i mean it's yes. just that there are there are he is the worst as we have said yeah um he is very much the worst um yeah so very interesting um about the different kind of the different betrayals and i also felt that 
for a lot of the women, they were damned if they did and they were damned if they didn't. So you definitely saw some of the women who were just like, they wanted to stand up, but that would put them in the firing line too. So there was this, yeah. you know, there was this awful, like, it's kind of a lose-lose situation. And um, I was determined, like, it's hard because mm. I, was, I was determined not to judge them for that. Right. You know, yeah. It's, yeah. what would you do? Absolutely. And, and it's easier now in a time when we have, at least in law, rights and, you know, certain privileges most of us have certain privileges related mm. to money or education or race mm. and these women didn't have any of that mm. and they were it simply wasn't feminism simply wasn't a thought no no <laughs> like, and and you know you can look at people like Mary Wollstonecraft who came a century and a half mm. later but they were still upper class women yes and we're still struggling with a lot of what these women are struggling against you know mm. in Poland women are fighting yeah. to keep their abortion rights yeah. and we are still there yeah and so I really try not to judge these women yeah in the book you know people like Toril like um, Marin's mother who cannot find it in themselves to yeah. stand up yeah um, or if they do they stand up for their oppressors yeah, I think that's a very valid point, actually. I mean, another quietly devastating moment um, comes at the very, very end when Marin like, crosses paths with her mum. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she, you can just see, like, she had no idea that it was, yeah. like, that what would happen, you know, would actually happen. Um, yeah. you know, she kind of says of that. Thought it would go that far. Yeah. You know, even Coral um, and. No, you know. sure. And yeah, so I think that's a really um, important point you've you've mentioned there, Kieran, about you know, not not judging these women. It's it would be easy too, but I did find myself asking the question at several points throughout the book. Well, who would I be on this island? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, or would I be none of these women and I'd, I'd be someone else? But, um, yeah. yeah, it's um, I always just so find complex. It, I do find it really, sorry to stay with this point, I do find yeah. it really interesting. Um, you know that slogan that went round a while ago that was, we are the daughters of the witches you could not burn? Yes. And I think, you know, I on the surface I was like, hell yeah. And then sure. when you dig deeper, it's actually such a privileged thing to say and actually mm. such a naive thing to say because that doesn't mean that the you know the women who who um sort of protected themselves and their mm. families are any less worthy of the rights that we are all fighting for now yeah um, absolutely it, it does just interest me how feminism co-opts the language of witchcraft and actually how mm. many of us would have in fact been complicit in it um depending yes. on the time and place Absolutely. And continue to be complicit, um, you know, in, in things like the struggle for trans rights and things like that. Yep. So I do just find it all very interesting. Yes. Yeah, important to not get into a kind of another comparison of women and say that one is better than the other. Um, exactly. Because it's just generally a fragile starting place, you know, to be. Exactly. Yeah. Um, really, really interesting. Um so you touched a little bit upon religion through Toril, but I mean, the, the book is, is called The Mercies. 
Um, and I feel like quite often that is used in regards to the mercies of God. Yes. Um, you know, we can see that on this tiny island that the church is, you know, a, a very central place. It's often a meeting place or for Toral after the storm. It's a place of comfort. Um, and Absalom, of course, is kind of the human manifestation of, of what is the worst of that kind of power of state and church and that yeah. authority. Um, it was interesting because it was such a small snippet, but, you know, Absalom's entry point into religion just kind of fascinated me. Um, he basically grew up very kind of poor, very rural, and his biggest... I mean, Absalom is someone who's just constantly seeking approval and wanting yes. to, you know, be seen and respected and and in a place of power. I'm not sure he actually knows what he wants. He just feels like he has certain hoops to jump through. Yeah. Um, but he comes from very humble beginnings. I believe, you know, he his family were sheep farmers. Yeah. And basically he... I mean, it's accidental. He comes across the church because it was the newest, nicest, cleaning, cleanest building, yeah. you know, in his village. And and then, like, the minister there saw something special in him, which kind of sent shivers down my spine. Um, yeah. You know, Ab Absalom is in incredibly complicated. I mean, obviously, you know, the energy is focused on the women, um, you know, and, and um, I don't want us to kind of make it all about Absalom but you know he what he was still in, he wasn't just an out and out baddie um even yeah. in regards to Ursula sometimes some you know sometimes he was genuinely tender sometimes he was genuinely like he he yeah you felt like he he had a human nice reaction and then like the power and the position and responsibility like duty took over um you know, who is that? I mean, is Absalom based? Who is he based on? And again, talking of like backstory or just making him three dimensional. Um, what, 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 what? You know, what were his motivations? What yeah. kind of tipped him over to to the cruelty side? For me, everyone except Hallyum is a victim. <laughs> Yeah. of the system that they find themselves in. Okay. Adam is so, so downtrodden yeah. when he walks into that church. And he feels that it gives him purpose, that mm. it gives him status, that it gives him, it makes him visible in a world where power is the only language, <laughs> and yeah. especially male power. And there is one way to be a man in mm. this world that mm. he finds himself in. And still, you know, there is a lot of pressure on men not to be soft, not to be kind, yeah. not to be tender. Yeah. And he holds the that rope in that witch trial that he describes at oh, the dinner party. Yes. Oh my gosh. Because it is the first time he has been told yes and told you are doing a good and righteous thing. Mm. And it appeals to his more base instincts that mm. he can do violence and yet be blessed right. directly by God, you know, by mm. a priest, by the court, by the king. Mm. And 
this is state-sanctioned murder. You know, people were told they were doing God's duty, and Absalom yeah. is absolutely caught up in that. And it's the same with his relationship with Ursa. He mm. wants to be a good husband, and he thinks being a good husband is having sex with your like you were saying about the Luther thing, yeah. having sex with your wife, having a baby, carrying mm. on God's children, and. Mm. You know, I, I did I did do a rather fraught the last event before lockdown that I did was a rather fraught event in the church. Oh, I can oh my um, goodness. <laughs> because people quite you know, were saying, you know, you hate religion and it's not that I hate faith, that I hate God, that I hate anything no. that gives people comfort or mm. purpose. But there are real questions to be asked around a system that systematically undermines other kinds of people who exist outside their framework and that's the problem that organized religion has still let alone then is that there are always going to be people on the wrong side of your rules and your beliefs and this is exactly what Absalom you know completely buys into and sees no need for nuance around um, you know, nowadays m- most people do see nuance around those things, but yeah. um, he does not, and he is literally just the muscle mm. for the church because he doesn't think. He is told what to think, and and we see his his. You know, if he'd been born now, maybe he'd be a very different man. And actually, mm. when you were saying who is he based on, and there were <laughs> commissioners, um, sort of in terms of that sort of side of him is based on, but. He's actually based on an ex-boyfriend who, um, who actually, you know, fell into a lot of those traps of thinking this is how you be a man. And oh wow! This is how you know that that kind of that struggle with yeah. with his natural urges to be soft and then being told to actually more go with the natural urges that are to be hard and to be Mm. you know forceful and and brutal and and it's just it was quite fun (laughs) injecting (laughs) some of those observations uh this was a teenage boyfriend so i don't know what he's like (laughs) now but um some of those observations into absalom and absolutely Mm. i from the beginning cared and felt sorry for absalom and actually his backstory wasn't in there but my mm. editor said you come across like you hate men in this book and it, that wasn't it at all it was just not happening on the page um those kind of so I tried to inject just enough backstory because I don't want to excuse his behavior no but I do want to understand it um mm, because yes. I think it's stupid to sort of say bad men are out are other you know every person yeah. is capable of of bad things yeah and good men who think they're good are often the most dangerous. <laughs> mm, that's yeah, that's it. It's so it's so much more nuanced than that. Yeah. And I I didn't think I didn't have the impression as a reader that you I mean your your editor obviously was so much more up close to this and probably saw oh, you yeah, know several drafts. Draft. Yeah. <laughs> um so you know, in the published version, you I don't get any man hating vibes. Yeah. Um um so yeah, and actually, I think you gave Absalom just as much 
kind of care um, and he's just as fleshed out and as complex as you know the women of the island well thank you it was it was really kind of interesting and satisfying to speak a bit more with you uh, the actual author about Absalom and having your insights just um, before I let you go back to um, settling into your new home um, I wonder if you have do you have a passage of do you have the book with you or would you like to read a little bit um, if you'd like me to. Oh, I, I mean, we would love you to. I'm speaking on behalf of the whole community here. <laughs> um, I, I can just read you a very short bit. Um, yeah. I can just read you the dream, if you like. Oh, that would be gorgeous. Yes, please. When, when you're ready. Yeah. Vardja, Finnmark, northeastern Norway, 1617. Last night, Marin dreamt a whale beached itself on the rocks outside her house. She climbed down the cliff to its heaving body and rested her eye against its eye, wrapped her arms across the great, stinking swell. There was nothing she could do for it but this. The men came scrambling down the black rock like dark, swift insects, flinting and hard-bodied with blades and scythes. They began to swing and cut before the whale was even dead, it bucking and all of them grim and holding like nets tight about the shoal her arms growing long and strong around it, so wide and fierce she held it, until she didn't know if she was a comfort or a menace and didn't care, only watched its eye with her eye, not blinking. Eventually it stilled, its breath melting out as they hacked and soared. She smelt the blubber burning in the lamps before it stopped moving, long before the bright roll of its eye beneath her eye wore down to dullness. She sank down into the rocks until she stood at the bottom of the sea. The night above was dark and moonless, stars scarring the surface. She drowned and came up from sleep gasping, smoke in her nostrils and at the dark back of her throat. The taste of burning fat caught under her tongue and would not be washed away. Ooh, thank you. That was beautiful. Thank you, thank you so much. Um, Kieran, what have you been able to read this year? Would you have any recommendations for the community? They can be witchy or non-witchy. <laughs> uh, no pressure. They can be new titles or old favourites. What have you I, kind of sought comfort in? I always have to read, like even in my <laughs> darkest moments. Oh. If I've stopped reading, I'm probably dead. Okay. So, <laughs> um, so some favorites that i've read this year mm. i loved mexican gothic <gasps> i so want to read yes. that i think it's only just you uh, well because you're a writer i think you may have got like an advanced copy oh, um because i think it's just kind of coming out here okay. slowly yeah it sounds fantastic it's really batshit <laughs> um, I love that. If I can swear. Yeah, of course, um, go for it. But in a in a great it really it really um invests in its in its batshittery and I think it works really well. Cool. Um Inland by Taya Obrit, um, oh. who wrote The Tiger's Wife. Oh yes. And it's kind of a um so it's her next novel and it's like a, a frontier western wow. with magical realism told from a woman's perspective. Um and it's absolutely fantastic. And my other, I'll give you two more favourites that I read this year. Yeah. I'm going to pick Shuggy Bane. Oh. Yeah, Douglas Stewart. 
recently um, won the internet uh, the man booker exactly mm. and honestly stunning okay um, really, okay really quite difficult yeah but worth it okay you know some books you read and you're like oh this just isn't there's nothing yeah it's just yeah. a drudge but it's mm. not it's beautiful it's about okay. love and mothers and sons and it's mm. lovely okay and then my final recommendation would be um is actually narrative non-fiction a ghost in the throat by Doreen Negrofa. Yes, I have. Yes, and it looks and beautiful as well. It's beautiful, and it's about her relationship with a poem, and it's about mm. motherhood and grief, and it's just beautiful. And she's a poet, and you can so tell. Mm. Um, and so those would probably be my my. But also, if just one last one actually, because it's by my bedside, oh, yes, and I'm in love with it so much. Um, <laughs> is the Fever by Megan Abbott? It came out in 2014, so it's mm. it's a few years old now. But it's basically about this um, fever that sweeps through these high school girls, and <gasps> it's really just so gripping and beautifully okay. written. And I would really recommend it. Oh my gosh, they all sound absolutely phenomenal. Um, that is fantastic. We will pop them in the show notes and also in our newsletter. Um, thank you so much for your time, your thoughtful insights, your fantastic book recommendations. Honestly, it's just been, I'm going to let you get back to your lovely house and I will just wish you a very merry festive season. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thank you, and I hope you have a lovely time discussing it. And oh, a lovely Christmas and New Year. Thank you very much. Take care of yourself. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. Um, as ever, make sure you're subscribed so that you're notified every time a new episode drops. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. In the show notes, you can find more on Kieran's writing, where to follow her on social media, how to get your hands on a copy of The Mercies, as well as uh, some of her recommended reads and anything that came up during our conversation. Take care. Bye.